Hello and welcome back to Urban Mobility of the Future, the Fujitsu podcast asking what the future of getting from A to B looks like and whether we and our cities are ready for it. My name's David Altsbev and I'm the Director of Data and Demonstrators at the Connected Places Catapult, the new name for the combined transport systems and future cities catapult. In this three-part series, I'll be taking you on a journey into the future of urban mobility. In episode one, we considered how transport systems will evolve as our urban spaces become more densely populated, more connected and ever more complex. In this second episode, we'll explore the ways in which connected transport will shape smart cities. We'll discuss the role that data might play in these connected systems and ask how cities will harness the true value of this information and how startups can engage with cities and transport providers in developing these new solutions. We'll find out how developments in intermodal transport models can benefit the full mix of transport users, improving accessibility for citizens, commuters and visitors alike. And lastly, we'll unpick the sticky issue of integration, asking how can we ensure that new transport innovations aren't developed in silos, disconnected from the everyday functioning of the cities and spaces they're being deployed in, but rooted in supporting the city's vision and supporting customers' needs. Now, I'm very lucky to be sharing the studio today with a number of experts from the cutting edge of technology and transport, and I'll take a moment just to allow them to introduce themselves. Hi all, my name is Noemi Devia. I'm the telecoms lead in D30, uh, responsible for identifying and combining communication and technology solutions in the different projects that we are working on. Hi, my name is Rabia Arzuni and I'm the CTO for Fujitsu in transport sector. I basically very, very much involved in the mobility as a service, smart cities and integrated mobility. Um, my passion in life is to ensure that emerging technologies actually benefits human communities and society. Hi, my name is Ariel Vetro. I also work at DG Cities, and my particular area of focus is on community engagement, customer research, and the social impacts and implications of smart cities and smart city technologies. My name is Simon Reid. I'm head of technology and data for Surface Transport at Transport for London. Lovely. Thank you, everyone. So let's start with perhaps the biggest question we'll tackle today. What can a more connected transport experience add to our urban spaces and their economies? Well, it's clear, as you said before, that the cities are facing great challenges. So density, congestion, the use of the spaces are really important. Uh, from the city point of view, we would like to see that like an accessibility problem more than a mobility problem. So how to transform and how to adapt the cities to be accessible for everyone. And basically, that's focused on four pillars. One is the use of the city, the morphology. Second, the transport systems, the mobile, the mobility solutions. Uh, also, we need to think about the design of the vehicles that are used in the different parts of the city. And finally, how all is integrated in the digital infrastructure and also the new technology that needs to be used to provide this kind of services. And Rabi, for yourself, how does that? Yeah, for me, for me, connected transport and, and systems are actually might end up connecting different smart cities in the future. Um, but also I see transport, it's not just moving people from one side to another. I see transport actually moving services, goods, uh, and, and you know financial services as well. Um, it's very important that whatever we're designing right now is very accessible and it's also inclusive as well at the same time. Uh, the mix of, of transport has to be accommodating to a lot of users uh, and, and actually meets a lot of needs. 
Um, for, for, for me as well, I, I think that the, the future of connected cities are still need, need to be defined. It depends who you talk to right now. That, that, that varies. Um, so it's an evolving uh, and it's a, an evolution rather than a revolution when it comes to, uh, to connected transport and cities. But, but ultimately is around addressing the human, human being uh, and society's and community's needs. And we need to put that at the heart of it all. Yeah, just building off what both Noemi and Ravi were saying, um, a connected city is an accessible city. And it's not just about a question of geography. It's not just a question of getting from point A to point B. It's how accessible is it? Can people access it with ease, with dignity? Is it efficient? Is it environmentally friendly? So there's a lot of facets to that question of accessibility. Simon, if I might invite you to give London and TFL's perspective. I think we've got a different brief. If we were having this conversation a few years ago, life would have been very different. We would have been talking about different modes and about how they might work and how they might interlink. For Transport for London, we've now been well, working for the last three or four years under one umbrella slogan, certainly, of, of just keep London moving. Because everything that's already been said, yes, of course, that has to be done. But of course, it's the rest of the infrastructure that keeps the whole city moving. Our brief isn't just to move people with accessibility needs or even to move people. It's how we keep the roads open, how you keep transport running, how you keep the services running through, how do you keep deliveries going. You know, as, we, as our world has moved so much over the last five years, so was the needs of the, um, the, the transport authority for any modern city. They've just shifted you know, completely from where they were just a couple of years ago. I think you're very right there. I think the debate around innovation in smart cities often focuses on what are the new technologies and practices that we can bring into a city, forgetting the fact that, like you say, the buses, the trains, they need to keep moving with regularity every single day and doing their function. I suppose the point I was also making, though, it's not just the people, it's the freight side. Yeah. You know, how do you, with a city this large, urbanisation is, is continuing, we expect that to continue. All the models say that that will carry on. So how do you get the services in there as well, on top of keeping the people moving and doing the jobs that they're doing? But also that the way that we consume mobility has just changed already. It's not about the tech now, it's about people's lifestyles. If you talk to a regular commuter, somebody who classed themselves as a regular commuter a couple of years ago, that was somebody that nine to five all got on at half past eight in the morning, they all went home at 20 past six in the evening. Now, somebody would still class themselves as a regular commuter, but it probably means they have one day a week working from home. They work on a client site probably two days a week, and yet they're still a regular commuter. It's a completely different model that we're looking like at all stratas of the uh, of your. It's true, and I think it's interesting that all of you in your responses alluded to the concept of accessibility, mm. but probably had very different perceptions and understanding of what accessibility meant from being available on time. I mean, we've got the two key demographic changes of one, an aging population which needs to, like say, access mobility with dignity, services that meet their needs, services that bring the goods and services to them, but also a very young millennial digital savvy population who expect a much more personalized on-demand system through their phones. So how can we ensure that the both existing transportation systems and the new transport systems that we're overlaying on top of that through these new innovative technologies continue to be accessible to the full mix of transport users and these huge varying needs? So uh, clearly there are challenges. Um, you know, transport has been, it's been running on a very legacy infrastructure for a very long time. And it's the reason it's, it's been safe is because it's been the way it is for a very long time. So integrating new emerging technology into transport is, is, is always challenging because A, you, you're testing these technologies against some really strict standards which you have to adhere to. 
Um, and also, you've got to look at um, how you continue running the service. I think, as Simon mentioned earlier, is you still have to serve the, the public. I think you've got to start really from a transport sector specific, and leading into the uh, the smart cities and vision and initiatives is if you've got to spot, you have to start because if you don't start, you'll end up you know staying behind, and you're always going to be trying to play catch up all all the time as well at the same time. And comparing to other industries, for example, transport sector is a bit behind because of those reasons that I've just mentioned. Um, so integration is is a key. Uh, security is still a concern. Uh, reliability is still obviously a concern. And also, you know, legislation and, and frameworks and, and laws that to do with public services have not really caught up yet. So there are challenges when it comes to integration. Yes, I completely agree about this integration approach because we need to create the ecosystem where the different stakeholders and the different people sector are uh, integrated so we can create this inclusive uh, methodology to get everyone in, in the same solution. So building these ecosystems with local authorities, transport providers, uh, people in the cities, uh, business, small uh, companies, uh, everyone who will be impacted for these new technologies and new solutions will be the, the successful approach for bringing the smart city agenda to the cities. I sort of yeah, I sort of agree, but I'm, I think at the end of the day, you've still got the basic core components have to be provided. However, we do it, it's still going to have a metro station, perhaps suburban rail, a public transport service, and there will be private cabs. I think the technology layers that have been added and are being talked about being added to it is basically just to make that mix much easier to get hold of. You mm -hmm. mentioned earlier um, the millennial generation with a smartphone solution. At the moment, that's sort of restricted to private hire vehicles. That's sort of where that is now. When people start talking about mobility as a service, what they're saying is expand that model out to use all sorts of things, from premium services at the top to public services at the bottom. And the trick is getting that mix right. The trick is, so you'll still have a, I think you'll still have a subsidised public transport network. I think you will still have a variety of private sector um, private sector hire vehicles. You'll have all sorts of ranges and graduation within it, and there's space for new entrants in that as well. But at the end of the day, it's how the customer wishes to consume that lot that's changed. You know, I don't think now people, somebody said the other day, do you actually go to the station and buy a ticket anymore? When was the last time that you did that? Well, it's usually because you've been caught out. Generally speaking, you would do it in advance. It's part of a planning thing. You've done something in advance. It, it, your way of consuming travel has already changed dramatically. But I still think that the core building blocks of your public transport mix, PSVs, and how you put that lot together, that's the trick. It's getting that right. Yeah, that chimes nicely of a comment made by one of the participants on our previous episode that the transport system and its procurement process is set up to deliver a reliable transport system that delivers the same building blocks again and again, always marginally better. So I guess the question then becomes, how do we marry this need to deliver that basic building blocks for all the different transport systems, enabling a better environment for cities to help startups and SMEs use the physical urban space as a laboratory to test and trial new ideas that can be integrated into the private sector, but then also into public sector solutions. I think my experience so far, I mean, there's already trials of, uh, if you just take autonomous vehicles for yeah. a moment, there's been private road trials for quite a period of time, and they're now beginning to come into fruition over the next two years in London, you will see autonomous vehicles coming in as a technology prover. 
The next step from the technology is somebody's going to have to business model where that would work as well. So if you can see the autonomous technology taking over some cost element or something of another service, then you'll clearly see how inroads will happen on that basis. But there has to be, I think you can get a startup to play in the disruptor um, break-in space, the sort of disruptor space quite easily. Getting a sustainable business model for the new service is quite a challenge. So one of the things that we're looking at within Transport for London is saying, if you have the bus service is subsidised, that's, that's the truth of it, you know, is a different model of delivering that service, would that cost the taxpayer less to provide? So is a demand-responsive service provide better value and yet still provide performance as opposed to a scheduled bus service? So then you're using new technology and new business model, but underneath there, it's still a public service that we're providing. So it's just seeing how those two things break across. Yeah, so definitely. Um, so in Fujitsu, as part of the ecosystem, we look at startups and we look at uh, the SMEs in the market to come and you know, perhaps bring in innovative ideas and so on. There's clearly still a challenge around scalability, right? So this, that still needs to be looked at. Um, you know, normally startups will be, you know, like five to ten people to bring in a really good ideas into, uh, and it's, it's quite agile and, and so on. So you still need to scale it. You still need to look after it in a normal service. Uh, and also, there's a lot of nervousness right now as well in the market. Uh, new ideas are spinning up all the time. Um, that there is this kind of like uncertainty around it. Right? Shall we do embrace this right now or shall we wait for it to uh, develop further? Like, for example, stuff like AI or uh, VR or anything like that. And how does it really relate to the whole smart mobility industry and, and the smarter city as well in the future? So, but I also think that no one company can do it on its own, to be honest. I, I really do that. You know, Fujitsu and other partners have to come in together to, to provide that vision um, and, and coming together in a, in a workforce, bringing in all of the startup communities as well. So it's about inclusivity in the service, but also provisioning in the, the service, inclusivity in, in, in provisioning the services Indeed. as well. So do you see that these changes are going to be rolled out as large enterprise or public sector-led infrastructure projects or more likely to be driven by disruptive innovators and new innovators or a mix of the both? I think that it's going to be a mix of both because if we need successful projects, uh, we need to, to be in, everyone involved in these projects. So uh, just an example in digital uh, greenies, we are building the strategy about the connectivity in the borough. So we are thinking about different projects, different options involving the industry to understand what are the different options there. And we are thinking on, on a joint venture approach. So both public and public sector working together to get the best uh, digital uh, network for the different residents, but also the SMEs and enterprise in, in the borough. And how do we frame this to have the right stories? How do we explain the opportunity that for cities in these new mobility solutions? How do we articulate it in a way that we get the leadership behind us and enabling the space for these new ideas to come through? I think a lot of it is consumer-led. I, I think most of it, yeah. you know, n nobody asked for the rise of the um, you know, credit card generation. It just happened because a service was there or, or innovators found a way of providing the service that people wanted. I've uh, been watching the rise of electric scooters around Europe over the last 12 months. 
That's a great product. It works well. It's gone down well with some cities that are really sorted out for it, but it's actually consumer-led. People like using that as a solution. It's a sort of cross between pedestrianisation and, and, and ordinary um, cycles, and it's got its own impetus. And I think that wave of public interest activity, it seems to have a, a sustainable business model. It seems to be that the capital investment isn't that hard. You can make a good return from it, and therefore it'll carry on and, and come into these areas. So um, I think that's the way that innovation is, is happening at the moment. Yeah, I, I think the consumer aspect of it is so important because you can have the shiniest, newest technology in the whole world, but if you don't have public support, if the public isn't willing to use it, if they're nervous about it, you know, that can halt progress or halt it from actually being implemented successfully. Um, I think there's a couple of things. So you've got, you've got new generation coming into the market and, you know, societies and communities and, and the workplace. So they're demanding a different kind of service, uh, you know, the Netflix and the Amazon type of service. And, and they're thinking, right, why I can't get, get this uh, in, in transport services as well? Uh, you've got disruptors coming into the market. So organizations are having to actually change some of their business models because if they don't, uh, then somebody will come and disrupt that market and they'll fall behind again. So so that's driving innovation as well at the same time. Uh, and you've got, you know, academia coming out and research coming out as well, you know, to advance of technology. That technology is now much smarter, can deliver much more cost-effective outputs. So why not innovate and why not do better services and to serve the customers and the commuters? Uh, I think ultimately it would be driven by all of these factors. It's not just one. And what we've seen a shift right now is, is actually where a lot of business models, um, traditional business models, have actually have to adopt or change uh, and work on a consortium basis just to kind of make sure that they don't fall behind in this market. So opening up to their different kind of business models because of the way the market are demanding these services. It's an interesting area to be touching upon because we've seen recently as well with Offer and Mobike, those types of models, in Europe, they're very similar business model to the electric scooters that are rising around Europe. They've actually had to withdraw from a lot of cities. So these consumer-led new models have come in, been very savvy, very tech-centric, and then suddenly the business model's been found to be collapsing, they've been withdrawn, and suddenly everyone's having to go back to rely on the public services yeah. that were there before. And... I guess more for you, Simon, how do we balance this need to allow new private sector innovators to come in, develop new consumer-led business models, but in the same way that don't cannibalize existing public services, and at the same time have a degree of a social contract with a city where they provide accessibility for all different types of users, not just the, so we say, the smartphone-enabled? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a constant discussion, a constant discussion in the, in the office. How do you avoid the fact that the public sector is perhaps, it could be a race to the bottom, they're just yep. providing the de minimis service, everybody else creams off the top of it. That's definitely a possibility. It's certainly one of the business models that we've looked at. So key for, for us as an authority is making sure that, first of all, you have the tools that you can respond to changes in consumer demand. And, you know, the rise of cycling and walking has put a different shape on transport in London compared to what it was just, as I said, five years ago. You know, it's made a completely different shape of it and we'll cut our cloth accordingly and hopefully we can react accordingly. But at the moment, I don't think, yes, there'll be people who want to play in that, uh, the top end of the market, the premium end of the market, but on scale across the whole city, 
less so, less, less of a thing, and we've not really seen that, that take off. So we're very, very wise and aware of the challenge. We hope to be able to respond to it by A, flexibility, and B, ubiquity, because we'd, you know, one of the main tenets of what we have within TFL is we're trying to provide the same consumer offering across the entire city, regardless of how that's provided. Now, very few of the new innovators that have come in have wanted to even partake in that discussion. It tends to be, I want to work in a particular area, normally the areas where they can see perhaps premium class A users with plenty of disposable income, and they don't want to go beyond that. Now, so there is a risk that they do take that top element off. Yeah, I think this raises an interesting discussion because for us at DGCDs, we're interested in exploring how does this technology or this service integrate with the existing public transport. And that is not something that comes up a lot, for perhaps for other companies, but for us it's of particular interest because, for example, if we were piloting an autonomous vehicle ride-sharing service, um, if this helps people you know, in mobility gaps, so if this helps someone with a mobility impairment get to a bus stop, then that's successful. But what if this service takes 15 people off a bus who would have taken the bus? and now it's taking them out of that public transport and putting them into a private vehicle. And what are the environmental impacts of that? So we're looking at the balance of how could this support people of particular groups and demographics who might be facing mobility barriers, but then how do we balance that with the potential drawbacks of it actually taking people off of public transport? We're living now in an age of data. We've got more data than ever before that can tell us various things about what our cities are working on. How can we effectively use this data to better understand those different segments of users, their needs, their specifics, and design different transport solutions, be they public or private, that meet those specifics? Because at the moment, generally, we've had a sort of ubiquitous transport system that's been a largely one-size-fits-all approach, let's cover the whole city. How can we now start delving down into let's make something a bit more bespoke for different types of users but still covers the city. Yeah, well, I think that the question about data is really challenging. Uh, it's true that the data is there, but how the data is used, what about the privacy, what about the transparency around this data is, is crucial. So now we are talking about the digital rights. Okay, everyone needs to have access, but everyone needs to be protected as well. So... Yeah, it's, it's really useful because that will give you more information about how people behave, how is the use of the transport, um, generating these best box solutions. But it's challenging because you need to provide this secure and trustful system or platform that is able to anonymize the data so nobody is on risk of, or, or threat. Or, uh, I, I think I think it's going to get more complex to, <laughs> to get yeah. more than that. Uh, I think with with five G coming in um, and and high connectivity, uh, we're going to have more data uh, from connected services, or, or either on the edge or in the centre. Um, and the key thing for me is is to filter out, you know, what data gives us good information. There's a lot of structured unstructured data out there, but also I think. When it comes to really talking about, you know, the benefit for society and human is is not just TFL's data. It's TFL's data plus other data 
from Heathrow, from, you know, Gatwick, from not even just the transport, but maybe some of the, you know, logistics and, you know, retail and so on. All of that aggregation of data and trying to understand what really makes a value to that consumer and bringing that together. Now, I know I know it's a big ask, yeah. um, but for us to really get to something which is smart city and uh, as a vision, uh, really as a, as a target for us, uh, we really need to break down those barriers, break down the barriers between data, between different transport operators and different transport bodies, and also transport and other markets within that society and the city. If we don't do that, we're going to be just inventing stuff within that particular sector, which doesn't really contribute to the wider, smarter city vision in the future. And ultimately, that will have a benefit to society and humanity in the future as well. So I think... um, I think it's going to get more complex, to, to be honest, uh, yeah. from what we have at the moment. I would like to add that it's not only about transport information, it's also about the different uh, components of the city. So it's about energy, it's about healthcare, it's about schools, everything that is happening in the city and how all the data integrate between each other and get the insights to provide the best solutions for the city. You're right, it is a very big ask, potentially a very utopian ask, that all this data is suddenly available and wonderfully integrated and the barriers are broken down. I mean, TFL, you became very famous when you opened up all your data sets and gave it out to all the innovators to develop a whole range of apps, the most famous being the CityMapper app. How have you been successful in integrating and drawing in other data sets, be they public or private, to help you develop better insights about mobility in London and developing new products off the back of that? Yeah, since 2010, when we put that policy in place, which was under the then political regime, um, then Mayor of London was Boris Johnson, and he basically got all of the agencies to, to publish their data out. And it did provide a tremendous leap forward. It, it basically created a lot of new industries that didn't previously exist. Data that we're releasing is effectively the exhaust from our day-on-day operations. It's effectively the what happened. It's effectively, you know, the predicted arrival time of a vehicle is basically, well, we know where the vehicle is now, and you can work the rest out with algorithms. And, and that's how that um, sort of process has come on. But your question is about how we are taking in new data sets. And the answer is we take them in all the time from different places to try and use them. Um, mainly it's about how we control the road network. You know, Any data source that you can get that reliably adds to the picture of what's happening in your road network and what you should do about it is clearly where we want to be. So we're investing already. There's the um, service intelligent transport system that we're currently out with. And, and that's specifically to try and do that, to read in those data sources, to make sure that when we're trying to manage the city, that we can see what's happening, both from our own sensors, but also other free sensors around the place, and try and bring that data together. Um, it's quite interesting, though. When you start, I was very interested in what you were saying just now about the types of data you want to bring in and, and the privacy thing on it. I think what will win out for the consumer is people don't have a problem with giving information out if they're getting value out of it. So I think if over time, people will get more relaxed about giving out the data if they can see that that's interacting with something else and giving them a personal service. Because actually, if there's one thing that's happened again over the last five years is we've become more, um, it, it's got to be more about me. 
So, so getting a sign up at the end of your street that says a delay on the A40, you don't care about. What it really wants to do is to say, Dave, there's a delay on the A40, so what you need to do is turn left, turn right, and you'll miss all of that. It's all about you and having a, a, an individual journey plan for you. And I think if that type of service starts coming through, consumers will say, yeah, fine, you can have my size of my toothbrush if that helps you give me the <laughs> right type of information that I need. I think... Um, I think just to add to that, Simon, absolutely. I mean, we see that happening right now in in, in media, right? So, um, y- you know, uh, 10 years ago, whatever, if you said, like, I'm going to put all of my life on Facebook, right, people would have run a mile, right? You see people now that are a bit more relaxed around, you know, pictures and their own life. And you look at, for example, some of these things that you get at the bottom of an order when it comes to Amazon order, it will tell you that basically, you know, you might like something like that. Now, there must be an algorithm where they know something about you that you don't know about yourself that might you might want to click and order that. What, equally, are, you, what are you confessing to here? <laughs> <laughs> Not that bad. Um, equally in Netflix, for example, you know, you, you know the, the way you get suggestions and so on. So, so you're... You're kind of like, to, to, to your point, I think security is definitely a concern, but I think, to Simon's point, is I'm getting something unique to me as an experience. So we're more, uh, you know, we're more open to, 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 to sharing some more information about ourselves. Uh, and it's definitely around personalization. Yeah, I think um, to Simon's point, perceptions are definitely changing. I'm, my hometown is Toronto, Canada, and um, there's a lot of projects going on right now, and there's a big smart city uh, project in the works. And a big report was just done trying to get a sense of people's perceptions. And I think that that project is kind of serving as a bit of a lightning rod for a lot of people's fears around data privacy and their concerns about that. But you can see there's a big chunk of people who are I fine with it if there's a benefit to the taxpayer. So, you know, if they can see benefits to them and their communities, and then there's still, you know, some who obviously aren't fine with it, but we can start to see the slowly, this shift towards, is there a benefit to me? Oh, okay. How can we therefore build in the regulation and protections that enable one protection of citizen data but also the articulation of these stories. It's very fine for us to have a good understanding of this issue to sit around this table and say, oh, if we can communicate the benefit to citizens, how can we make it relevant to them? What is this ultimately going to mean for them in their real lives? Because we're seeing now the ODI, they're exploring the options for different regulatory data trusts to start actually having a more proactive public role in protecting people's data. Is it realistic that we expect everyone to give individual consent for their data? Or how do we actually go about doing this in a way? And what is it? that is relevant to individual citizens and ultimately what does it mean for the smart connected passenger well, <laughs> another big ask for you there <laughs> take a moment to think about your responses well um, I think that um, part of this is transparency and also education so first if public, private, and everyone is transparent about how the data is used and the public can trust on, on, on those processes is going to help to to move forward in the way we use the data. But it's also about education, so explaining people exactly that, that uh, there are a minimum of rights, a minimum of things that have been deployed to ensure this security and how this data is going to benefit them in their real life, in the day-by-day things that they are doing in the city. Uh, for, for me, it's it's about trust, right? Okay, if I can trust you, I'm able to share more information 
Like, you know, think about it like, you know, in our social life, right? Okay, if you meet somebody and you build that trust, okay, and you build from there, you start to share it more. You start to talk about things more. Talk about your family, talk about your kids, talk about your car, what you enjoy and so on, right? So immediately you do that. Um, so I think it's the trust. You know, you need to build that, uh, the brand. A TFL's got a great one. And obviously, you know, from, from that, you can build on that trust. Um, and, and it takes time. It's, you're not going to get it overnight. Um, within that as well is not just the trust that in your own organization with your partners and ecosystem, right? You know, you got to trust each other, not just the, you and the public, you and the, all of the other partners that you're working together towards a common theme. Um, and uh, in Fujitsu, we put trust in the heart of all of this uh, because without it, you can't really operate. Um, on top of that is... We talk about it all the time, but security by design it has to go, right? So often with, particularly with mobility services and, and smart city services, security is looked at right at the end. It should run across the scheme. In fact, it should really be right at the front of it all. Uh, so what tends to happen, you create something which is really innovative, and then you start to think about how you're going to secure it. I think that's the wrong way of doing it. I think what you should be looking, looking at security right from the word go and then really look at the implication of this if something goes wrong, not the aftermath or, or wait for something to happen. Do you not think, though, I mean, if you think about the last big set of security breaches that have happened in the UK, I could throw one in there, talk, talk, you know, yeah. massive security breach. I think they got fined by the Information Commissioner, but I don't think their share price is any different and the number of subscribers has gone up. So it's quite a dichotomy that... People were very concerned about their data. Data was clearly taken during that process. At the end of the day, I'm not sure what the impact was. It certainly wasn't what everybody thought. Um, I think there was more of an impact on Twitter when, I forgot the name of the lady, Kylie Jenner, is it? When she yeah. said, I'm so over Twitter, that had a massive impact on that service compared with when Facebook confessed to selling off your data and letting various agencies do unmentionable things with it. So although we talk about this a lot and we try and get this thing in, I'm going back to that consumer point that you were mentioning. I think the consumer is what swings it. And if the consumer follows, in that case, a, a public figure and what they are saying, that sometimes that's more influential than the, the underlying business uh, ethos or the actual underlying problems that that business presented. And I think it's, it's definitely to do with transparency as well. It's, it's like when you look at, for example, one of the Apple phones where they had a problem with a, with with a uh, with a battery, right? They came to the front and they said, right, you know what? We've got a problem. We're going to communicate, and you kind of build that, right? So it, it's transparency. I think with Talk Talk, it took a while where it came out. Mm. To the, to I the think press. that's why they got fined. Actually, yeah, was that? Yeah. <laughs> but Apple got away with it slightly differently, or slightly because they were, you know, they were open. they were open, they were transparent, and so on. So you you can do that. You're right. We need to be transparent. I mean, we. We're working in a new area here. It's a bit of a minefield a lot of the time, and we're going to make mistakes. We're going to trip up. We're going to learn as we go. And like I say the need to be at the forefront and say, "Okay, we tried this. It didn't work, and we're telling you now," is critical. I mean, Ariel, in Greenwich, you do a lot of pilots uh, with particularly very consumer-centric pilots. I mean, particularly like putting autonomous vehicles on the streets there, you're one of the pioneers in the UK doing that. There's still a lot of public mistrust about a vehicle with no one at the wheel operating on public streets. How do you 
build that trust and transparency with your citizens in the borough about what you're doing and the benefits to them. I mean, we're still figuring that out right now. We're trying to go through that process, especially with autonomous vehicles. It's really interesting because we can see in, in past work we've done, um, a project called Merge, how different demographics respond differently. Um, men of a certain um, age range, of a certain income, are more receptive to an autonomous vehicle service than women of a certain age and certain income. Um, there's also questions of, like you're saying, if there's no steward on board, um, there's concerns about safety. What I want to get into this vehicle if something were to happen and there is not a steward to manage that. Um, also, uh, gendered concerns about safety. Women, are they more or less likely to use it because of fears of their personal safety and security? So it's difficult to mitigate, and we're trying to go through that process. And I think one step to try and actually achieve that kind of trust is to educate people, to have them sit in on their trials and to get their feedback. What would make it safer? Is it a design solution, having bigger windows so that the public could see in, so that they feel not enclosed? Um, there's also questions, funny, that's come up about uh, social uh, norms and regulations, because if, if I'm on a bus or if I'm on the tube, I'm probably not going to strike up a conversation with the person beside me. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's a red flag. Red flag yeah. um, She's fully integrated into the vacancy. But if I'm in a vehicle, what are those, those social norms? Are they suspended? If I'm, it's a much more intimate setting. If I'm sitting beside another person, we're doing in a ride share. Do I have an expectation to talk to them now? And mm. that, funnily enough, has actually presented as a barrier for a lot of people that they might be less likely to use that service because what are the social norms in that space? So I think we are going through wow. that process of how do we get, I think getting feedback is the first thing, and then trying to just make solutions based off of that feedback. That's fascinating, the British sense of awkwardness coming into play with uh, autonomous vehicles. And I think that's, that's actually the same as you go a little bit further up the scale, though, with, with demand response. We're, we're thinking that we're going to have the same sort of problems, or certainly we're thinking about that, because, you know, if you order a private hire vehicle, that's you, and perhaps your colleague or friend or something like that. But if you're then saying, OK, it's slightly cheaper, but you're going to share with up to five people, that's where that problem comes in. And then what do you get actually on the journey experience? So now it's not just myself going to my end destination, but I'm picking up a couple of people, well, I might be all right with that. But now I've got them being dropped off and maybe I'm not the first being dropped off. We're actually turning out of my way to go and drop them off as well. How does that play into your experience of the journey? Yeah, our merge project found that there was a certain number of people, they'd be less likely to use the service if it was um, sharing with other people. And then that number fell dramatically if it was going to regularly, there were going to be a number of other people sharing that service. So it's it presents a very interesting challenge. So, so we can see a demand response being... Um yeah, that's one of the things that we're trying to learn, really, is that we think there's a tolerance. I think I read that report. that There's a tolerance on multiple pickup points if you're all going to the same destination. It's a shared outcome. That sort of seems to work quite well. But I think, it, it, unless I'm paraphrasing it wrongly, sort of differing pickup points and differing destinations, major turnoff because people just can't see yeah. the value. Where's the... Where's the me factor in that? I'm it's exactly that because I, you know, I went from uh, using Uber to Fiervan to use some of those, uh, you know, the other mm -hmm. services, and I, I didn't see a value, so I went back into Uber again because I, I get, you know, I get that kind of, you know, value for me, 
um, and I wasn't going to be delayed on the journey and so on is differently. But back to, I think we we you posted something on the other day, the other day around this um, this this van uh, or or this autonomous uh, company that gone bust because they had the design completely wrong as well, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, uh, it looked like a bit like a like prison cell or something like that. Um, but I think, uh, I think it's, it's what's, what's acceptable for me as well is different to other people, right? So the kind of car that we're going to get in the future is it needs to be that, that whole personalization piece. And, and, and that's why I think it's going to be more individual personalized journeys rather than the shared journeys. Um, because I see that autonomous vehicle or, or whatever that method of transport in the future is an extension of what you're already doing. So you could be working at home and you go into a meeting and that might be your office as, you know, as you go. Or you might have to have maybe a social, you know, a social element with your family and talk. And so so there is going to have to be a, a really a personalization element in all of this. I think one potential challenge with when it's so personalized is what are the broader impacts? If what are the environmental consequences if everyone, if no one wants to do a ride sharing service and it's just one individual in the car, what does that actually mean for the environment or efficiency if, and congestion and all of these sorts of questions? So it's balancing the personalization aspect with these broader environmental, economic, yeah. social impacts. And understood. There's definitely uh, this is why emerging technology is is looking at these, some of these challenges in terms of route optimization. Um, it's going to be huge when it comes to autonomous vehicles or any multimodal operation moving forward. Uh, it's, it's a whole new thing, right? But but you can only this is just the the, the 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 car or the bus side of it. Then you talk about you know all of the other ecosystems and how you connect. That needs to all come into that equation as well. We've been talking mainly about cities really let's yeah. be honest yeah. and I think the other challenge is as soon as you step outside of an individual city this argument just disappears out the window um, colleagues and I'm living outside of the city now you know any concept of not having a car privately driven car is just completely off the page in yeah. the UK it just doesn't work I was in Liverpool the other day and I asked about Uber and they said yeah fine if you want to work in Liverpool absolutely fine cross the river no, no, no absolutely no chance whatsoever so I think at the moment we are tending to focus in these types of conversations on urban villages small communities within particular areas and what we can do to, 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 to take things forward back to the very start of the conversation we were talking about accessibility and I was talking to a gentleman who's, who's blind. Um, it comes in from Guildford, which is hardly a million miles away from London, and he goes to North London. And it would be absolutely impossible for him at the moment to find one service that he could actually get that end-to-end journey right the way yeah. through. We haven't even cracked that. So outside of the concept of the urban village, I think we're a long, long way about talking about an yeah. accessible single service that's applicable to all people within community. I'm, long way i'm probably quite a pessimist i think for us doing that i think it goes back to someone's point earlier about it being more evolution rather than uh revolution and that the transport system in the future will still largely look like the transport system it is today it's just with incremental data and tech driven uh, insights and underlying technologies behind them but i think largely largely like you say people will still stick to what they know it always reminds me of that uh, example when Ford re- retired the chariot on-demand bus service, mm. and the quote was, people didn't want another type of bus. Yeah, They knew the bus system that they knew, and they were quite happy with that, and they weren't prepared to adapt to a new system. I think that's the key, is, is nobody's consulted with people right now. Uh, you know, how much consultation in Ghana is into the public is how many of these initiatives are actually applicable to those people, to your point. 
you know, somebody who needs, you know, a different kind of service, is it going to fly? Is it going to go? Is it going to meet their needs? And we were talking about this earlier, I think, me and Naomi, around that, you know, a lot of these products have been developed in isolation without any consultation. And the danger there that we are going to alienate some people in, in that process, and we can't be doing that. It needs to be inclusive. So how do we overcome these challenges? I mean, there's a huge mix of users, all different needs, different definitions of accessibility, affordability, reliability, personalization, particularly when it's the private sector often coming in, testing and trialing out the new solutions. How can the cities and the public sector help convey what those challenges are and what that breadth of user need is so that the new solutions developed have those in mind from the outset? I think... What we're trying to do with Transport for London is to try and engage with those new innovators as they come through and try and get a sort of code of conduct for working together. So when Douglas Bikes came in a couple of years ago, we, we, you mentioned Mobike and others, we actually had a dialogue with them uh, after a shaky start with the first one. But once we got the uh, concept across that we yep. weren't here to prevent them, we were trying to work within, there is a regulatory framework, there are certain things that we're responsible for dealing with. But once you get beyond that, it's actually about what can you have in terms of a data partnership? Can they give us some insights, some use of data or things like that that we can take advantage of? And we're going to do the same thing with all these other technologies that they're coming through. So as they get to AV trials, we'll probably do the same, try and work with these companies. Yes, we need to ensure that they're complying with the uh, uh, any available regulations that are around there. But to be honest with you, they're set countrywide anyway. The, um, so it, we have a limited role there. But it is a question of, you know, can we have a dialogue? Can we keep in there? Can we work together to understand what those impacts are? And can, can we use the data? Because taking the AV space, one of the things that was mentioned earlier, you know, we probably will want to have some sort of control. You don't want this network, if it encounters a problem, to suddenly reroute itself automatically at the detriment of the city. You know, what would be the role of TfL at that point? If there was a rerouting exercise going on and we had some areas where we didn't particularly want traffic, could we have some control or some influence on that above and beyond whatever routing the vehicle has got? But trying to set that out at the outset is going to be a better model for us than trying to impose it once a problem has occurred. Definitely the collaborative approach is the best in these cases. And, well, in in these cities we are building one of the test beds for autonomous and connected cars. And this collaborative approach will bring us ideas and solutions and test different kind of uh, things in, in this ecosystem. So we will be able to trial solutions, technology, or different uh, things around all these topics in a collaborative ecosystem. Um, for me, is 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 you talked about how do we make sure that we whatever we're designing is going to meet the needs, right? So, so best thing is ask the people. Uh, you know, ask them what they want, right? Ask them what they're trying to get to. Um, so this is you know what we try to do here in Fujitsu is as well as looking at the data is actually go out and actually send the market and actually interview people and say, you know what, how painful is your journey? What do you think about all of this emerging technology that's coming out? What do you know about it? How do you think this is going to benefit you in the future and so on? If you don't know about it, back to the education piece, maybe we should start to tackle some of these messages that are coming out. So we need to kind of inform the public to tell us what's right for them to kind of develop those products and services. Because ultimately, again, back to my point at the beginning, it is about a human-centric piece. It is about a community. 
Um, because if we don't, then we'll miss a trick and then we'll end up developing and burning energy cost and time on something that might not be used or mm. be used very rarely. And it doesn't really help benefit the you know, societies as well. And how do we translate this education piece to other smaller cities? London is in a wonderful position of having TfL and a great range of experts in there who can help the city manage this disruption and people coming in. How can we educate other city officials and leaders so that the disruption to the transportation system is something they're fully engaged with, with their citizens in mind, rather than something that's being done to them by outside forces? I think if I knew the answer to that, I'd be somewhere else by now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a DFT, running DFT by now. I mean, there is, historically, um, London has a unique situation in terms of legislation as much as yeah. anything else. So it does give it differing powers. And those powers are now spreading to other authorities. So Transport for the North and Transport for Greater Manchester and yeah. other places are now using some of those similar powers mm -hmm. as legislation framework has changed. Um, it's about money. And transport over the last couple of uh, government spending reviews hasn't done particularly well. And therefore, with limited funds available, there is an awful lot of sharing goes on of ideas. But I think with a recognition that a model that might work well for London doesn't necessarily work well for a Plymouth or a Glasgow or a Carlisle or somewhere, somewhere similar in between. It, it's, we do try, all the authorities try and share best practice and ideas but are very, very aware of is what the differences are that make some of the cities as well. You know, some of these cities have got a, a completely privately run tra public transport, sorry, privately run public transport service. Yes, that's probably what it is. It's a public transport service run entirely by private operators, and yet to the man in the street, they've still got their bus that turns up. That's a different model that you have in London where we take the revenue risk and we're providing subsidy to provide those same services. So it's, I think, sharing the good practice, but recognising that the difference is sometimes what makes the, uh, the various cities work. Indeed. And on the subject of best practice, we talked a lot about uh, differences between London and other UK cities. Where do you draw inspiration from other global cities that are testing and trialling new solutions? Where have you seen examples that you think this is something I want to learn more about and I think we should be trying it out here. In, in my mind, it's always Spain, <laughs> as in Spanish. So, yeah, <laughs> Barcelona is one of the cities that is developing different solutions for for transport and other smart city solutions. But uh, also uh, Santander and other small cities are trialing different solutions. But can you be specific about the solutions in Barcelona well, and Santander that they you're are, drawing inspiration well, from? Well, it's, it's basically what we are doing also in, in London. So trying different uh, ways of doing cycling, uh, active walking, scooters, plus all the buses and the traditional uh, way and how all work together and try to find intermodal traveling with, with all these solutions. Um, I usually think of Tokyo, um, not only in terms of efficiency and things running on time, but also in terms of accessibility. Um, I remember my, when I first came to London about a year and a half ago, um, one of the tube stops wasn't accessible and it had a set of stairs and I saw an older woman carrying bags and really struggling and I remember just it was so jarring to see that that it was such a barrier for her just to get her groceries or to carry these bags and to go up those stairs. And then 
after I remember seeing a woman with a pram on the cobblestones. And, you know, I'm from quite areas where there's quite a lot of new builds, so we don't really have cobblestones um, in the same way. <laughs> but uh, just even seeing that, and even though it's aesthetically pleasing and, and beautiful and you want to retain that, the history and the culture, how all of that actually can present a barrier from someone getting from point A to point B. And I'm looking at Tokyo and seeing how seamless and accessible their transport system is, is I think something that we, a lot of us or a lot of cities can learn from. Personally, I think I'm, I'm, I always get something from any of the cities I go to. So Valencia was the last one when I, I, the whole electric scooter thing was just running amok in Valencia. It was great. It was really well managed. It provided an awful lot to the city and really complemented the way that city was pushing itself forward. So there was a new mode that I hadn't seen before. Lots of other things you pick up is um, different approaches to ticketing around the globe. And some of it is... Um, you know, underneath there, there's a payment system somewhere that you're trying to do. But the, the way that different cities have approached it, we can learn an awful lot. The whole be in, be out thing where you, you just jump on and off and sensors pick up how far you've traveled. Fascinating as to how that works. And each city has a sort of like character about them, which um, I find fascinating to see how the transport, you know, what works best for that city reflects the city, I think. And is there any city that's actively deployed that jump-in, jump-off approach? I think most of them have got as far as POCs with it. Okay. But, of course, it's the fraud rate. It comes back to a conversation we've had several times here. And I, and I think, you know, for, for me, this is the mantra now, that it's not about the technology. You've got to have a business model that works. So with B&B &B out, fraud is a problem. If, you're, if your city is used to an open transport network, it has no impact on fraud at all because they're used to that type of trust-based travel. If you've got a city which is gated and everybody is expected to tap in and tap out, if you introduce a B-in, B-out system, you will have horrendous problems because the culture of people being trusted is not in the same level. And I think, you know, as you were saying just now, it's that whole thing about... Um, it is about trust and community and recognising the community you're working with. So you could get the technology to work tomorrow, but getting the city to use it in the way that it was intended, that could be a 10-year programme. Yeah, I think that point about fraud and going back to your point about social norms on different modes of transportation as they're coming about, we've seen it well, from docked bike to dockless bikes, people just abusing the dockless yep. bike systems. And there was a recent report that came out looking at the, the business model impact of dockless scooters and noting that the lifetime of a dockless scooter was around 28 days because they were just getting trashed. Yeah. And because people are like, oh, it's a free resource on the city, I can just treat it as my own and just not worry about it. And like I say, there needs to be that translation of social norms that we've come to expect on public transport that it's a public good for everyone to serve everyone onto these new mobilities. Anyway, Rami, go back to you one last time for yeah, the uh, so, um, favourite uh, cities. Or so for me, um, you, so uh, there's one which is slightly more. So you look at Dubai, is everything that flies is is great. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so but that's for a different reason. I'll come back down to earth again. So uh, I, I think uh, you know they've got flying cars, like uh, you know police, and they've got drones and everything like that. But it's a new, relatively new city, so we can learn a lot from that when it comes. Well, obviously, when it comes to London, is a different kind of challenge. You look at Helsinki, for example. Uh, you know, they've got this integrated payment system and it is multimodal, right? So, you know, even though they have their own business model, yeah. so, you know, buses, cars, all mm -hmm. of that stuff, taxis, all, all of that, you can use one card, that, which is actually your credit card, right? The same way you do it. And they managed to break down the business model that they traditionally have. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, and that takes a lot of will, takes a lot of government support and, and, and backup, but also more importantly, that trust, right? Because if I'm sharing this kind of platform with you and something goes wrong in my infrastructure, how does that work? You know, where's the demarcation? Uh, so it takes a lot of trust. So this it's just two cities with slightly different spectrums, though. For the viewers listening, that the example there was actually the mobility as a service solution called WIM. So Wim, that's an yeah. app where you have on your phone which will cover all mobility solutions. It's now actually being deployed into the West Midlands, covering the buses and trains there as well. So they're actually expanding outside of Finland. Yeah, great. Brings me nicely on to the sort of last question I wanted to sort of explore on this um, episode today. In the previous episode, there's a lot of talk about connectivity in smart cities, and plenty of the connected transport solutions already exist, particularly with regards to timetabling and passenger updates. But how can we ensure that these solutions aren't developed in silos and can be properly integrated in future city operations? There's been a lot of talk about pilots and tests and trials here, but how do we actually make these new solutions a ubiquitous part of the way the city operates and have longevity? I think for passenger information, I think standardising is the way to do this. Um, I don't think it's necessarily one authority's job to pull that together, but if, uh, I mean, the DFT are already through the Bus Services Act in this country, um, are basically mandating the standards that they would expect to see for all passenger-based information, and that's fares, timetables, real-time information across the whole piece. And I think that, and that's come about, that's not heavy-handed legislation, that's just because of observations over the last 10 years as to what they've seen in the place. Once you do that, once you say that the data for the area is now in one standard format, that allows any number of innovators to get that solution to the right people in the right way. So whether that's a specialist app because somebody's got particular accessibility needs, or whether it's a question of just delivering that service to the most readily point of it. You know, we, we have... Um, at a very simple level, we have displays in IKEA. So when you leave IKEA, it'll tell you when the bus comes. It's sort of obvious. That's the place you want to know. You don't want to walk across the road in the rain and then find there's not a bus for five minutes. Do that when you're still in there and can have a cup of tea in your hand. So I think standardisation of data and probably a little bit of a, a carrot and stick to make sure that all of the local operators are putting the data out in the same way. And then I, I think, personally... The people who consume it, the output devices that we see on it, that's where all the flexibility comes for the years ahead. Yeah, I'm more thinking on the technological aspect, the open platform that allows all people to use the data, to um, develop application, to use the data and to integrate all the information will be key to be successful in this area. Um, uh, yeah, open innovation. Um, I, I think uh, I think this is where it is more collaboration, open innovation. Uh, the, 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 the other thing is, um, you know, the, the, the market is flooded with ideas, right? And a lot of it is repetitive ideas. So you're gonna have to really filter your way through all of all of this. Um, but I think it's um, is it, is trying to you know choose your trusted partner, go go into start to talk about all of these ideas, um, look at um, being part of uh, like either a consortium or, or part of a, a, an innovation group because I don't, as I mentioned, none of it can be done by one organization. So you need to collaborate. You need to have the standards around data. Uh, you need to have a, a also legislation. I think government is slightly trying to pick up, you know, in terms of how do we use AI, it still needs to be formalized. So, you know, the more standard and guidelines comes into market for all these emerging technologies, the more it is, these emerging technologies are going to be ad adapted as well in the future. So still a way to go, but I think it's getting there. 
Lovely. Well, thank you very much, everyone. I'm afraid we're just about out of time for this episode, but I think we've done well to grapple with some of the big issues here. I think some of the key points that have arisen throughout this discussion for me was, one, that need for open collaboration and innovation, but balance with the need for standardisation and regulation to ensure a ubiquitous playing field for everyone. Some really interesting discussions there around the need to develop trust of our citizens and also to educate them on these new models, the social norms, the awkwardness and so on. And largely, I guess, the evolution, not revolution. The transport system is still going to look largely like it is today. People are still going to want to use the same types of models. They're not going to want massive disruption in the way they move. They've still got a wide variety of needs that need to be met in a similar manner. In our third and final episode, we'll turn to talk about co-creation. We'll aim to sculpt a model that can be used to deliver smart transport services for urban environments, and we'll consider how these new services might be marketed to the people who ultimately use them. We'll ask what businesses and other organisations should be doing to prepare for the future. So, a big thank you to all of our guests for taking the time to join me in the conversation today. You can find out more about Fujitsu's vision for the future of transport by searching for Fujitsu Global Transport. And until next time, thanks for listening.